Today we continue um, in this little series called Controversial Church. And this, this little series was just birthed out of a number of conversations in our community of, of, of frustrations that folks felt uh, with their faith. And so, um, yeah, we, we hope that this is the thing that not only serves um, us collectively, but also might meet you in the midst of where you are uh, in your journey of faith, your journey with Jesus. So our text, our teaching text comes from the Gospel according to Matthew and Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 9 to 13. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. God. You can have a seat. So at the start of the week, I, um, I was reading the headlines on a little news app on my phone, and this is what the, the headlines read at the beginning of the week. Putin's mass strike on Ukraine draws furious condemnation, followed by attacks on Jewish schools set off outcry over anti-Semitic signaling, and worst is yet to come for the world economy. If you were to have checked in, I don't know, this morning, you would see a lot other, like, I don't know, basically dire consequences. Essentially, uh, the stories were overwhelmingly about hurt and violence and outrage. And that seems to be pretty normal when it comes to opening up your news app. And sometimes, you know, there's little things like the pour over. I don't know if you're familiar with that. They like try and make you smile a little bit so you don't, you know, end up in a deep, deep hole of depression. But that, that being said, um, it seems like overwhelmingly this is where the stories trend. Suffice it to say, like hope for stability and peace are consistently deterred. And that's not to say that there is not hope in the world, uh, but amid the chaos, it can start to feel pretty far off. And for many folks, like the buzz of chaos, it begs this question, is God in control? Of all the topics that were sent in when we asked for questions that frustrated people's faith, this was like the second highest one. And there's different ways that this was asked, you know, challenging passages about genocide. Does God command that? What do we do with that? But if you were to distill them all down, this is the question that was front and center. Is God in control? Like in the face of death and destruction and viruses and all of that stuff, all of the stuff on your news app, this is a natural question to ask. Can a good and morally perfect God be in control of this mess? And in seasons of uncertainty and anxiety, there is this impulse that we have to seek after like guarantees. Guarantees feel comforting. So if you talk about language of control, you're like, oh, okay, then that, that provides me some sort of salve to the uncertainty I'm feeling. But my guess is that anybody who's been around the church for any amount of time, you've either been on the giving or receiving side of these little statements of God's in control, God is sovereign, all things work together for good, who those whom God has called. You know, like, it's all these things. Or, or God has a plan. And I, I really don't want to insult the sincerity or the intention of people who are making those statements. I, I imagine um, that even in the right relational container that those statements can bring uh, release and healing 
But what I want to help us see is that though these slogans and other like them can confront with comfort in the long term, um, they can be problematic. Problematic to our faith and the faith of those who are around us, or the, the faith of those who've yet to have faith. And they're problematic because they flatten the problem of evil and the beauty of a God who would draw near to us in the face of suffering. See, theologians call this little thing a theodicy. Say that with me, theodicy. There you go. Yeah, that's this unavoidable question that enters our lives because of suffering. It's a word that means something like God and justice, the justice of God, Theo, God, and then there's these like dikaiosunes, this idea of justice or righteousness. So this is theodicy. What is, and curiously, there is no worldview or philosophy or religion that can avoid this frustration, the presence of suffering on one side and the presence of God on the other. Like, how do you do this? And one of history's most well-known statements about the problem of evil, it comes from this Greek philosopher Epicurus, and he says this, is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not omnipotent or all-powerful. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Where does the evil come from? Is he able, neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? And that little quote kind of packages together the, the felt experience of, I imagine, many of our colleagues and friends who face suffering and then also face the trite comments and slogans of God is in control because the two things don't seem to map onto one another. See, theodicy gets at the frustration of trying to fit the square peg of justice we long for into the round hole of human suffering. They just don't quite line up. And what I've noticed is that just beneath the surface of the question, is God in control, is this other question? It's like, what, what, what do I do with the silence of God in the face of suffering? Like, there is so much, and yet I don't really see a lot of justice pouring out. See, if we're to walk with God for any extended length of time, a day or a decade or a lifetime, then we have to grow increasingly confident in God's character even when we don't understand God's answers. And so I just want to prime you as we enter into this. The, the answer to this is not going to be intellectually satisfying. It's not going to be like you walk away and go, ah. it might actually be more frustrating. So you ready? Okay. If you're not, I'm sorry. See, I want to spend the rest of our time exploring this tension because when the buzz of chaos grows louder around us and in us, the, the question that we're compelled to ask is, is God in control? It just seems to like burble up, like gurgle up. And so, so is God in control? Kind of. See, according to Jewish and Christian scriptures, there is this distinction between God's identity as sovereign over creation and the demonstration of God's sovereignty in creation. And this language can feel a little bit technical, and I don't want this to feel entirely like a lecture. Um, and I know what happens when we shift into this mode is some of you will sleep. So, we're, so lean in here, folks. We're about to, we're about to uh, get after this word sovereignty. Because in church spaces, it's thrown around, and it's like, well, what, what the heck do you even mean? See, so often the question, is God in control? It comes with this assumption that for every occurrence in human history, there ought to be a divine rationale behind it. All things happen for a reason. God has a plan. 
That's the assumption embedded in that question. So the birth of a child, that's God, it's beautiful, it's glorious, but when that child is stillborn, is that still God? Or like, like a beautiful sunset. Did any of you see the sunrise this morning? Oh my gosh. It was like this burning red with pink. It was glorious. Stirred my affections for Jesus something fierce. But the derecho, is that God as well? Like, what, what do we do with this? What do we do with even more egregious acts of violence that come across our little screens and tablets all the time or like happen to us in our person? What happens when we're walking down the street and someone yells a racial slur at us? Or we're the one who has, the, like, are you getting my point? Like, where, where is this? Where is God in this? Is God in control? Well, the way of, uh, of seeing the world that would say yes to that question uh, is what Greg Boyd, he, he's a, a theologian who calls this the blueprint worldview. And this is what uh, some theologians would call meticulous providence or meticulous sovereignty. Sovereignty has to do with ruling and power. And this idea, the first time I heard it described was this picture, um, you know when the, when the ray of light is coming into a room and you can see the dust particles? And you're like, that's kind of gross because that's like my skin. Um, and then this is what a, a theolo- this one theologian describes, meticulous providence is this, that the creator God by his sovereign power is holding all of those little particles because before ordained, before the foundation of the world, he knew where they would go. And when you're in college, you know, fresh to the Jesus stuff, that sounds really compelling. Um, but... While this view corresponds to the nature of God's authority, that God is sovereign over creation, it fails to place God's authority within the complexity of the universe we actually live in. It's like a fairy tale of sorts because the universe that we live in is full of creatures, human and spiritual. We'll get to to that in a bit. Uh, Full of creatures, human and spiritual, who possess genuine will and agency. And while the blueprint worldview, it's, it's right about the content of God's authority, that is God's sovereignty, it misses the context of God's authority. And this is what I mean, like humanity along with spiritual beings can and do resist God's will even to the point of frustrating God's purposes. And if, uh, if you're like uh, maybe you lean a little bit more reformed in your theology or if that means anything, then you might feel a little nervous right now. So just stay with me. Um, it, it just visit our, visit our teaching text once more. We pick up at the start of the Lord's Prayer, and Jesus does this. He affirms the authority of God. He does this through this little idiomatic statement, uh, our Father in the heavens. So this idea of in the heavens, this position of authority, our Father in the heavens, the heavens are the domain of God's present rule. And then we read this. This is in verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It would be an odd thing for Jesus to instruct his disciples, and in turn, you and me, to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven if God was fully in control on earth as it is in heaven. Are you with me on that? Like, that would be a really odd thing for Jesus to instruct his disciples and you and me in turn to pray. But we pray for God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven because there are competing wills that can and do resist God's will. And they stand in opposition to God's kingdom. This is what I mean. If you just were to thumb through the New Testament, and you you would find little instances like this, like in the gospel according to Luke, the religious elite of the day, uh, they're they're said to have rejected God's purposes. 
or the emerging church in this Roman city of Ephesus, they are warned against grieving the Holy Spirit of God through their actions. Or you get the addressees in the letter of the Hebrews, what you get there is a warning three times over not to harden their hearts. So you have rejection and grieving and hardening, and this is not a new thing to the human story. In some sense, these in the biblical imagination are all echoes of the first rebellion. Though God's sovereignty in creation has been frustrated, God's identity as sovereign over creation is not frustrated. But uh, to unpack that with a little bit more clarity, we're going to need to uh, review the story. And if you're like, oh no, I know what that means. Kyle has said review the story enough times. Are we going to hear about the whole Hebrew Bible in 10 minutes? No, just Genesis 1 and 2. See, if we're, if we're actually going to know what it looks like to unpack this, then we would do well to actually remember the breadth of the story that we find life in. Because in the face of suffering, the horizon of life can so easily narrow to the place of pain, but the story invites us to broaden our horizon to the place of hope. So this is the story. It starts off like this, in the beginning. Yeah, the Bible's opening chapters, they present God's relationship to the world with two complementary, not contradicting, two complementary accounts. And you have Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 4, or to 2, 3, and that depicts God as sovereign over the world, kind of, you know, creating by the word and like the, the order is coming out of chaos. That's this picture of transcendence. Say that with me, transcendence. So there's God in Genesis 1 to 2, 3, transcendent. And then what you have is this complementary thing. There's a shift in Genesis 2, 4 to 25. And it's, it's as though God is fashioning in partnership with humanity all of creation. And however you read those creation accounts, and Christians love to talk about creation accounts or what's happening there. What's clear is that in the first, God is depicted as exalted and distinct. And in the second, God is getting his proverbial hands dirty. That word is imminent. So you have transcendent and imminent, and they're not in competition. They are compatible in the first, transcendent, in the second, imminent. And while we might be more accustomed with the first, this idea of a transcendent God, this is almost like a deistic view. God set everything in motion and is just kind of far off. This might actually be your felt experience of the God of the Bible. It's kind of far off and distant. But I want us to notice something in this little second account, this second story. Because this beautiful thing, I think, breaks through the buzz of chaos that we even feel now. This is in uh, Genesis 2, 19. Check this out. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man. And right there, this is Adam, humanity. It's this inclusive picture. He brought them to humanity to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. And maybe you're thinking, okay, that's neat. <laughs> but, but hear this line again. He, that is the creator God, Yahweh, brought them to humanity to see what they would be named. This is not a picture of a God who is quote-unquote in control or or really determining the course of events. There's like curiosity. Instead, the authors of Genesis imagine the creator God as the type of God who would, who like would assume the position of an observer, 
would be a genuine participant in the process, and would more specifically one who would willfully give away authority for the good of others. I don't know about you, but like encountering this shifted how I had to think about the question, is God in control? Because it's almost asking the wrong question. It's like grasping for the confidence. I want like the security of certainty, but that's just not the story that we're in. Because as we come to terms with suffering, this is the God who would participate. This is the beautiful image of God that I want to help us see. One who is willing to draw near, to join, to participate, and honor the dignity of human will. See, God's not merely just an absent creator. God is an involved partner. It's not one or the other, but it is this both and. And in keeping with this uh, desire, God uh, released humanity to to bring order out of chaos on God's behalf, to to really demonstrate God's purposes in the world for flourishing's sake. This is known as as the cultural mandate or uh, the whole be fruitful and multiply bit. That's what's going on here. But in that place, like they're given this, this opportunity to go and push the bounds of flourishing out into all of creation, but instead what they do is they forego that role. And this curious creature, the serpent, like is just apparently there. Uh, this creature who becomes associated with the Satan spins this story. And in spinning this story about God calls God's character into question. And as the story goes, humanity does not go on to partner with God and sow seeds of peace. Instead, they choose to become agents of the chaos that God had commissioned them to subdue. They choose to believe the lie that God is holding out on them, and then they chart their own path to flourishing. So ours is, our story, the human story, starts out as one as beautiful as participation and devolves into something where we choose our own definition of good and evil. Both of these are a part of our story. The the one, the latter one, doesn't negate the beauty of creation, of the divine desire to see humanity flourish and push the bounds of flourishing out into all creation. But tragically, the suspicion of God's character lingers. It like echoes in the fabric of humanity. And I would say to this very day, and and I want us to notice this, if you will, with me, Um, this question, is God in control, it, it misses that God would desire to partner with humanity, not overpower. And when God gives moral agents like you and me, and even that snake apparently free will, and free will is just defined as this, like the ability to go this way or that way. When the creator God gives moral agents free will, that gift seems to be irrevocable, that it's not something that can be rescinded, just taken back. And that's not to say that God can't influence our decisions through his presence or appeal to us through other moral agents, uh, but a prohibition would be coercion, and coercion and manipulation are not in keeping with God's character. See, if God didn't like my choice about X, Y, or Z and prohibited it from ever taking place, it stands to reason that I was never truly free to make that choice in the first place. Instead, what you see more often is that God accommodates to our decisions, that God, it lowers God's self to enter into that place to figure out, okay, how are we going to move toward flourishing in this present condition? 
See, the God that we meet in the scriptures is one who honors humanity's choice to reject or receive his path to flourishing. And that is a, that's a weird place to be because it actually means that we get to choose to follow Jesus. It means that we enter into this divine relationship through God in Christ and mediated by the, the Spirit. I mean, it is, can we just be honest, this is like not here, but it's kind of bizarre that we stopped our week on a Sunday, or we could say we started our week, to come together into a co-working space to hear some random dude talk about ancient scripture that we think has divine wisdom for today. So, I mean, this is, this is kind of bizarre, but it's so beautiful. Because what I've seen over the past three years in this community is people begin to shift their imaginations of the possibility of what God could do and who God is to them. In some sense, they've, we've like seen God participate with us in healing and in formation. It's this beautiful thing. This is like the story of love being written. And you know, it, it may be annoying, but it is not inconsistent to say that God is both all powerful and there are things that God cannot or will not do because it is inconsistent with God's desire to give us free will. See, chaos is the risk of love. You can say, why, why all of this stuff? Well, it was the community of eternal love that birthed creation. And that love is what continues to move us forward, but chaos is the risk of love. And tragically, the headwaters of our story are tainted with rebellion. This is what the biblical authors call sin. Sin is just this very simple idea of missing the mark, missing the mark of honor and love that was intended for creation. And you, you could, if you want to, you could jump through all sorts of theological loops and said, well, no, God knew that the rebellion would happen, and God had a plan in place to bail out humanity in the face of that rebellion. You could do that. To my mind, I don't think that that takes God on God's terms. I think it asks God to do something that God is seemingly doing. The, like, he's asking humanity, what do you want to name them? He's participating. It's shifting God's... Nature. And it's actually the complexity of a God who would participate that helps us see the distinction between God's identity as sovereign over creation and the demonstration of God's sovereignty within creation. How are we doing? This is not like a light Sunday brunch kind of a thing, huh? See, what happens is when we read on the story, what we encounter is that God was actually not content to remain far off. Like with chaos on the loose, what God does is draws near, and God then continues to invite humanity to enter into this role, to partner with God, to see flourishing come out. But humanity and the people of Israel continue to forego that role. And our great surprise in the face of that choice to forego that role, like love compels God to then enter the human story. To, to take the chaos of sin and death into himself and to break their enslaving grip of the world. This is the story of Jesus. And God has promised that he is bringing about a future new creation that will be completely free of the devastation and chaos caused by sin and death, which for any of us who stand or sit in suffering or know those who do or see it on the news, it actually has a place. It's not optimism, it's hope. 
And there's a fundamental difference between optimism and hope. Optimism looks and says, I will manufacture something good out of this crap. Hope says, amid all of this, there's something that can hold me fast and I can cling to it. That is the difference with which Jesus comes. He offers us a hope in the face of that. And all those who call upon God in Christ will inhabit that future world and enjoy a reality characterized by peace and blessing. This is the wonder of universal flourishing that's ahead. And so the risk for followers of Jesus is to just kick back and say, well, it's coming one day. But that would also be to miss that God is the God who draws near and God is the one who has filled us with his presence to do the same. This is simply to be the people of suffering love that enter into the story, seeing the suffering and yet also holding the love of God. See, this is what Jesus' prayer invites us to contend for. J jump back with me to the, to the prayer in the Sermon on the Mount here. Right in verse 9, we say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, not only does Jesus invite us to pray for God's will to come amid competing wills, but, but get this, he invites us to pray for God's kingdom to come. And because we're, you know, America and we had that revolution, uh, we don't really get what it's like to be in a commonwealth or to have, the, I don't know, like kingdoms. The closest we get is like, oh yeah, the queen, she died. Or we watched, what are the shows on the Netflix? The, the Crown or something? Yeah. Like, those are, like that's the closest we get to the kingdom. But Jesus' prayer is actually something that's, I hope, I hope, a place to frustrate all of that and then bring us some, into something more beautiful. He invites us to pray for God's kingdom to come. And Dallas Willard, he defines God's kingdom as the range of God's effective will. See, the kingdom is where what God wants to get done gets done. We all have our own little kingdoms where what we want to get done gets done. How do you feel when what you want to get done doesn't get done? You feel great. No, you don't. It's, it's a bummer. It could be something small. That's, by the way, that feeling that you, that you maybe are noticing, right? That's called disappointment. Yeah. Um, God's kingdom according to Jesus, is a kingdom that is characterized by the least becoming, these are the Beatitudes, by the way, the least becoming the greatest, the poor inheriting all things, the mourning receiving comforting, basically all the wrong things being put right. This is the kingdom of God. This, these are the type of people who are already receiving the love of God in Christ. But let me just ask you a, a quick question here. When you look around, are the least being exalted? S serious question. Are the least being exalted? No. Are the poor inheriting all things? <laughs> you see where this is going, right? Are the mourning receiving true comfort? I don't think so. See, the world is not as it ought to be, and I think we know it in our bones. And it's easy, it is easy to like distract ourselves from the pain that's there. And then when the pain is just somehow, it, we cannot escape it, we ask, well, is God in control of this? Like, and we're frustrated. If God was in control, then certainly this wouldn't be the case. And I'm not trying to get God off the hook in this teaching, by the way. Like, Jesus is a big boy, he can take care of himself kind of a thing. But I think what we need to see is the God who is a 
apparent on the pages of Scripture may not be the malevolent God who's working the evil and the cancer for his purpose. I think perhaps it is that the creator God has come down with suffering love on such frequency that as it occurs, God's love is such that it is moving toward to bring comfort. And we say, well, it looks like God is arranging the evil, but what if God is just so attentive to his creation that he's present when those things are taking place? And God will not frustrate the free will of moral agents. This is a little bit more complex than just God is in control of all of this or everything's going to hell in a handbasket. See, in the same way that we're invited to pray for God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven because there are competing wills, we're invited to pray for God's kingdom to come here on earth because there are competing kingdoms. And we're, we're getting close to the end here, folks, so you're just, you're doing well. It may not really be fashionable to talk about, and I don't know how often you all have these conversations over the dinner table, but like the whole scope of the Bible, and Jesus himself bears witness to a counter kingdom characterized by chaos and death. And yes, I'm talking about the Satan and demons, and I'm not talking about like, you know, what we see around like horns and the tail. That's like out of Dante. In some sense, they're much more real than this. If you want to hear, this is Jesus' most descriptive line about the Satan. In John 8, 44, Jesus weighs in and says this, uh, when speaking to a group of religious leaders, which is a little disconcerting, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a, and listen to this, a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies." Elsewhere in the Gospels in the New Testament, uh, the, the Satan will be called the strong man who Jesus comes to bind so that all the things that the strong man has stolen could be plundered. That's a title. Uh, it, the, the Satan is also called the ruler of this world who Jesus has come to cast out, uh, the accuser of the brethren. Got to love that one, uh, I guess if you're a guy. Uh, the prince of the power of the air or the tempter. And whatever the title may be, what bears out is that this spiritual being and a host of other spiritual beings stand in opposition to God's reign and rule in the world. And if you're like, gosh, I really want to know more about that, you would do well to come to the theology class where we will talk more about those things. And this is, this is important. And if you haven't heard really much of this talk so far, lean in a little bit. Just kind of shift to your left and right. Wake yourself up. Are you ready? Okay, Jesus didn't just come to bind the strong man or cast out the ruler of this world to get God's authority back. Jesus came to get humanity's authority back. Jesus, the truly human one, entered into our story with suffering love to take on the weight of sin and shame and to die to death itself, not so that he could win back God's authority, but so that he could release through God's presence, the authority that has been given to humanity in the beginning of the story. Because yes, our story is one tainted at the headwaters with sin and rebellion, but before that, it is one of the beauty of creation. That is what Jesus is restoring. By the way, that is what it means to join God in the renewal of all things, is to reckon with the evil in this world, not on our terms through our power dynamics, but through the power of the personal presence of God who draws near to pain. This is the gift that the church could give, and the gift that I've seen given in this church is that those who follow Jesus draw near to one another in their pain. 
And that might not be intellectually satisfying, but I tell you what, it is emotionally cohesive and it's something that builds up and binds a community together. This is the potency of the gospel, Jesus who would enter into this to restore humanity in partnership with God. I love how the Apostle John, or as he calls himself, the Apostle of Love puts it, Jesus came to destroy the works of the evil one because that's what's destroying us. And, and I want us to get this. Jesus, amen. Jesus was not crucified for being nice. The, the early church was not thrown to lions in the Colosseum for being nice. Like the way of Jesus thrusts us in to the front lines of a clash of kingdoms. Increasingly so, if you identify with Jesus in the marketplace, it will yield frustration for you. I have the great convenience of being like a pastor, so my job is pretty front and center. But if you're in marketing and you work, I don't know, maybe you fold clothes, you do dry cleaning, and a hypothetical scenario, and people know you follow the way of Jesus, that has a serious impact. So the question in front of us when we see this is, what is the posture that Jesus maintains? Well, I want us to hear this. This is at the end of the Lord's Prayer. See, it's curious that at the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus invites us to pray this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. See, the way of Jesus is not one devoid of power. So when you're standing in the face of like cultural oppression, that, or not oppression, but pressure, something that says it's not fashionable to follow Jesus. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I'm, uh, what I'm not saying is that the people, your coworkers are like the Satan or empowered. No, I'm saying that there is a reality where there is a temptation to withdraw from the identity of Jesus. And Jesus is saying there's actually potency in the Lord's prayer so that you could lean into that. It's not that you have to like become like a Bible thumper or something like that. But to identify with Jesus is to become the type of person who owns your identity as one loved by God in Christ. And perhaps it's like you say, no, this is the truest thing about me. When there's pushback, it's like, no, this is my true identity. This is where I'm found. Because the way of Jesus, I, mean, I love how the Apostle Peter, he summarizes this to a community who's trying to make sense of the way. And he says, says this in Acts 10, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. You see, it was love that compelled the triune God to create. It was love that sustained God's invitation to partner in the face of sin. And it was love that compelled God to enter into the chaos, confront sin and death, and ultimately take them into himself to embrace their enslaving grip over the world and you and me. It is love that compelled God and love that can compel the church. The fundamental definition of love is to give ourselves away for the good of the other regardless of our preference. Love by its definition is a type of suffering. And you have to ask the question, is God in control? What are we getting at? Maybe we just need a better question, like a question like, where is God in this? What is God trying to do in me through this? And it changes the whole perspective. 
This is the power of the gospel to shape our imaginations, to see the world not as a place where God is either in control or out of control, but a place that God in love is moving toward through the church. How, how are we doing? We're about to close. So I love how David Bentley Hart comments on this. He says, if it is from Christ, and I, I think he's right in this, if it is from Christ that we are to learn how God relates himself to sin, suffering, evil, and death, it would seem that he provides us little evidence of anything other than a regal, relentless, and miraculous enmity. Sin he forgives, suffering he heals, evil he casts out, and death he conquers. And absolutely nowhere does Christ act as if any of these things are part of the eternal work or purposes of God. See, church, the, the, the nature of Christian hope is not that God is in control. Just let that sink in. Christian hope is that God is on his way to his world and is present now through his spirit to redeem it. And so we pray, like we receive the Lord's prayer as a place to shape our imaginations about the type of God that is partnering with us. We pray so that we might know our story, that the story doesn't end in death, but ends in deliverance. Like this is our true story. And right now, if you're sitting in suffering, I, I could imagine how trite this sounds. Like, just to say it, like a 30-something a, a minute sermon will not mitigate against the suffering you faced, are facing, or will face. But the God who draws near, the paraclete, the comforter, that is the one. The personal presence of God can sustain you amid that. See, the Lord's Prayer is a gift given to help us think again about the world around us. This is the place where we get to inhabit a different type of kingdom. Do you realize that when Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this is not just Jesus alone praying. It's a gift given to you to pray that. Pray like this. Perhaps the question that we would do well to ask ourselves as a community is, where are we in this story? See, there's this interesting moment. It's a moment I've been thinking about a lot recently. It's a story that comes from the Valley of Elah. And if you're unfamiliar with the Valley of Elah, you actually might be more familiar with it than you know. This is the David and Goliath story. This is the place where uh, David comes to attend to the troops who are there. There's the Philistines, and this is, this is the picture. There's the Philistines on one hillside, and there's the Israelites on the other. And the Philistines have sent Goliath for this giant who's been taunting the people of Israel to send out one who would fight. Israel sends out no one. You have the people of Israel who are coward, like cowering in fear. How could we ever overcome this giant? And then you have David. David rolls up, and I, I'd imagine what he's out, like, tending to the flocks. And so what is he doing there? I don't know. Like, what's, what do we see him doing in the psalm? Probably singing and dancing and stuff. <laughs> and he comes to the Valley of Elah. And, and, and historically, there's no context. There's no, there's no precedent for David ever having been in that place before. So it's unfamiliar. And then it says he goes and he gets five smooth stones. But where do you get five smooth stones from? Well, you get them down in a brook. And it, the text doesn't say this, but it's likely that David bends down to pick up the stones. 
And so here's the picture. On one side, you have the world, the Philistines. On the other side, you have the church. The world is making accusations that you cannot stand against us. The church is over here cowering in fear because apparently the church can't stand against us. And in the middle, you have this boy on his knees taking up the weapons of trust. I wonder where we are in the story. I wonder how the Lord's Prayer might like enliven our hearts to attend to the suffering around and in us. I wonder what it might look like to become a community of suffering love that like holds tightly to the words of Jesus. And so I want to invite us to two things as we close, finally. <laughs> I want us to pray the Lord's Prayer together. And then I want us to take the bread and the cup. And then I want to just invite you. I want you to sing these songs that we're about to sing as though the way of Jesus might actually be true. Just imagine if followers of Jesus attended to one another and then to Jesus like, Forget about the people who are finishing the marathon. Forget about the small, well, don't entirely forget about the small humans. If they're yours, you got to get them after. But like, just imagine if Jesus wants to be present to you in this moment, to say, I am here with you in this story, in this moment, in the suffering that you are facing. And I actually, if you're not facing any suffering, perhaps Jesus wants to move through you for the suffering of your neighbor. So if you would stand with me. And I want us to read this together. And if, you've, if you want, it's, this is all invitation to take the bread and the cup, but I, we'll read it a couple times, and then we'll sing these songs. But starting with our Father, let us, let's read the Lord's Prayer as a place for us to even map ourselves of where we are in the story. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's read that again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one.